Through Hoop with me, Gerard Hector. I am joined by Henry Abbott, and we have a special guest. Uh, Teresa Runstedler is a scholar of African-American history whose research examines Black popular culture with a particular focus on the intersection of race, masculinity, labor, and sport. Dr. Runstedler is the associate professor in the Departments of History and Critical Race, Gender, and Culture Studies at American University. And she is the author of the forthcoming book, Black Ball. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. <laughs> Teresa, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Always happy, you know, to to talk to folks who are actually interested in your work. As an <laughs> academic, it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> oh, come on. You're not writing about like like the That's cell great. or something here, right? right? This like, is, this is like... exciting. <laughs> <laughs> So you, I mean, God, Black Ball, these incredible names, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. Like, books or movies are, you know, that's all ideology, right? Whenever you whenever you create them, it's, it's something that you believe. So why did you write this book? What was the impetus behind creating this? Yeah, so I think it's partially a personal story and then also sort of where it came out of my research, but um, you probably know this. I'm sure you've done some research on me. I used to be a Raptors dance pack member back in the late 90s. Um, I danced with- Damon Stoudemire time? Yep. Is that what I- yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, into the Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady. Oh, yeah. those were the good days. Yeah. 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 So- have this experience having worked for an NBA team and sort of, you know, been on the court, although not actually playing basketball, but sort of seeing behind the scenes how teams work. And even from my position as a dancer, I could see the race and labor politics of professional basketball and the whole spectacle of NBA games being played out right before my eyes. I think at that time, I probably didn't have a really great critique of things. Um, I was only a university undergrad at the time, paying my way through college. Um, but you know, I'm still in contact with a lot of the folks from, we call ourselves the OG Raptors, <laughs> Dance Pack, folks who've been around since the beginning. Um, and so we, we meet up for you know, reunions and all that kind of stuff. We actually have one coming up uh, in the summer um, to celebrate. Um, so that's the personal side of it. Um, in terms of my scholarship, I started out doing a project on Len Bias, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you're all very <laughs> familiar with. Uh, 1986 gets drafted first to the Boston Celtics and then tragically dies of a cocaine overdose. Um, you know, almost immediately after finding out that he had been drafted. Um, And so part of what I was interested in was why did folks suddenly jump right away to imagining him as this sort of um, Black athlete who was a drug addict? I mean, obviously there was cocaine involved, but it just seemed like you know, folks turned right away and there was all of this discussion about the bad, uh, the bad behavior of black athletes, mm-hmm. black college athletes, black 
uh, professional athletes. And I just wanted to sort of dig um, into the history of that. Why was that the automatic assumption? Why did they associate black basketball players immediately with, um, you know, the urban inner city? when Bias himself was actually from Prince George County, Prince <laughs> George's County. He was not, you know, some kind of hardened criminal from the streets of D.C. Um, so I started digging and um, part of the chapter, chapter four, which looks at Wally Jones um, and his sort of uh, undoing uh you know, and the, all of the uh, the cocaine accusations. And then Chris Cobbs' infamous article from 1980 about this, you know, supposed cocaine epidemic in the NBA. And I was just like struck by the number of articles I started finding of predominantly Black athletes and predominantly Black basketball players being arrested um, for possession of cocaine, um, for suspected drug trafficking, and often these cases would get dismissed because of lack of evidence. And in the case of Wally Jones, you know, no charges were ever brought against him because all sorts of shenanigans happened with the evidence. And so I was like, what is up with that? Why, you know, why is this sort of the predominant story? by the mid to late 70s about black basketball players. And anyone that you ask about the 70s, they immediately talk about violence. There was so much fighting on the court. Um, you know, the players, they were greedy. The players, they were lazy. The players, you know, they were using drugs. And I just wanted to figure out, was this actually true? Or was this a racialized narrative about a sport that had suddenly transformed from being predominantly white to predominantly black in the space of a decade and folks didn't know what to do with it? And so that's sort of the story of black ball is looking at the transformation of the league and the, the kind of discourses about you know, black men essentially not just integrating professional basketball, but dominating professional basketball and reading that as a way to think about uh, racial integration and black power in the era. Yeah. I mean, and that's essentially what your book does, right? Because it's almost a time capsule of what the larger society was going through during that same time period, right? Whatever sport it is, it's an encapsulation of the larger society in which it inhabits, right? Like this was what was going on in the law and order Richard Nixon days. Like blacks were criminalized for every possible conceivable behavior that was deemed black or right? whatever that means. Right. And so the same thing happened in the NBA. And to me, what I was struck by with this book, Teresa, I kept coming back to the same question over and over and over in my head every time I got to a new chapter. And the question is who has governance over the black body? And that every time I open, I'm like, this is what we're trying to answer here. And everyone has a stake in it, right? The athlete themselves, it, it is actually mm -hmm. theirs. So they are the ones who should right? have total governance over it, but they don't. White team owners, fans, media, like everyone has a piece of this. And to me, 
this is this is the central theme that like we are trying to answer in many ways it's still happening now today the same arguments you see being played out in the 70s play out now just looks slightly different because the money's bigger and they're more famous and but it's really still the same kind of argument like as you were writing the book and as you as it finished did that sort of come into your mind like well, this is this is kind of happening now with current players yeah absolutely i mean i even saw it through you know, sort of thinking historically, historically during my own time in the late 90s, early 2000s into the 2000 teens, the various fights over, um, you know, is hip hop invading basketball with Allen Iverson mm-hmm. and, you know, other players from his moment who were bringing black street style into the league um you know in the nba actually they kind of opened the door for that Mm -hmm. because they realized that um black style was actually hugely profitable um but they wanted it to be a very carefully curated version of that (laughs) so you know you saw it in the late 90s with the so-called dunk ages um you see it in the fights over um you know, the various lockouts that have happened Mm -hmm. um, over the years with the NBA, the consistent narrative is almost like the leagues are this humanitarian organization (laughs) that, um, you know, is giving these young black men who need the help jobs and work and this opportunity and they should be grateful. And in fact, you know, they're doing it they're they're offering this opportunity so well that they're actually overpaying them to do this, you know, this job, which is essentially play. And therefore, you know, you should give back some of the profits to us because we can't survive. We are financially, you know, hitting um, a level where we might go insolvent. This was the narrative of the 70s, precisely when the ABA, um, for those who don't know about it, the American Basketball Association and the NBA, um, you know, which was the established league, were fighting over talent. They were the ones, the team owners were the ones who just kept going up and up and up with the salaries. And when it got to the point of bursting, this, you know, I call it kind of like a speculative basketball bubble mm-hmm. that they created. They blamed the players and they said, you are asking for too much. You, you know, we need to clamp down on this, et cetera. Um, so you see those same kinds of narratives being used in the NBA lockouts. You see it even in, I think, especially white fans reactions mm-hmm. to folks like LeBron. Um, I'm thinking back to that whole hoopla over LeBron deciding to leave Cleveland. And everybody was like, oh, how (laughs) dare he, you know, like, how dare he shop his talents on the open market? (laughs) You know, like everybody else in society does, you know. Take his body Um, where he wants to take his body. Take his body where he wants to take it. Have control over his career. And this is in the age of free agency. Right. The guys that I'm looking at, like Haywood, Kareem Mm -hmm. Abdul-Jabbar, Oscar Robertson, you know, they all started out their careers under the reserve clause, Mm -hmm. which essentially bound them to one team for life. 
um, they didn't actually own their bodies, but they owned their contracts. So they could dispense with these guys whenever they wanted to. And there was no way for you to shop your talents to another team to try and get a higher salary. So it suppressed everyone's wages. Mm -hmm. So for me, LeBron, you know, he was just sort of shopping his labor, his, you know, his talents, which, you know, in the last 20 years, we've seen are immense, <laughs> right? To good. another team and, <laughs> and trying to, yeah, trying to, um, you know, get the best contract possible. And yet somehow this violates, I think, a lot of the racial scripts of professional sports, especially when it comes to black players. Yeah. There's, there's this extra expectation of loyalty and gratitude that black players are expected to have. Um, and I think the same thing comes out with even, you know, in a sport like football, with Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. daring to sort of take a knee oh, during the national news. anthem, <laughs> a silent protest, right? And quite respectful of my kneeling. Quite actually. respectable, <laughs> right? If we're talking about respectability politics. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, again, it gets back to how is he allowed to comport his body on the sidelines? White fans, white team owners, league officials feel like they have the right to dictate his behavior on the sidelines and, you know, talk about the relationship between past and present. I mean, I call the book blackball, <laughs> you know, for the, for the double meaning yes. of it, that if you don't sort of follow the proper racial etiquette, that you have the potential to be blacklisted. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. You know, yeah. the N the NFL, operates like a monopoly and they've decided that he's not going to work in the NFL. So, yeah. you know, and it goes back to who has control over their bodies, over their labor. Like we often think of athletes as something other than workers. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that was part of the, the book too, mm -hmm. was to say, Hey, like, not only are these just like, humans right <laughs> who we should look at in a holistic sense on the court and off the court but you know they are workers mm -hmm. you know they're highly paid but they are mm -hmm. they're workers <laughs> you know and they have just like anyone else under u.s law although u.s law is not that favorable to workers <laughs> they do have some rights yeah. to 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 actually um try and gain control over the working conditions yeah no, I, I mean, God, you hit on so much good stuff there. Like Henry knows. I'm all like, stirred up. This, 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 is right up, this is right up my alley. <laughs> Henry's you're, like, you're... I'm ready to go on strike immediately. <laughs> Let's do it, right? But it's, it, it's this idea of the reserve clause, right? And you're like, you know, but I, I would argue that the owners did have control over their bodies because oh, they absolutely. could dictate minutes, right? Oh, you're going to yeah. play 46 minutes of a possible 48 every night. Sometimes yeah. 48 minutes a night. I don't care if you run your joints into the ground. Don't matter to me, right? Like we're gonna and we'll grind actually you <laughs> shoot you up with, um, yeah, you know, whatever medications you know, to make sure that you will. You I mean, playing. that's yeah. That is that is our goal. But you mentioned the, the arguments that have been happening now about well, we're losing money and we can't. It's because of you. And I know Henry, you are nodding because this is the fight we're going to have. Mm, 
a few months here, give or take, right? With the current CBA set, already going to expire. Like, right. this is what the owners are going to say again. We have no money. You guys are doing whatever you want, running control over the league. And there is a component where the media and most, and we are in it, Henry and I are members of it, most of the NBA media are white people by and large. And they're going to take the sense of, you know, it's not fair to the owners, white, fans, white, that, right? That these players get to do these things. And it's like, guys, like, again, who is in control of their own body and labor here? And what are we doing? Like, is this league this benevolent thing? It's like, oh, look at this great stuff we did for you. Like, we took you out of, like, poverty and, like, you're making millions. And it's like, guys, this is, there's so much more to it than that. And I think for me, Teresa, where it, where I kind of felt it was the way you opened the book. God, could you open it with a less sadder story than Connie Hawkins? Like, right. there's this kid who's just like, I'm just out here playing some ball. I meet this unscrupulous white dude who's committing point shaving scandals. I never did anything illegal or wrong. Sure, I introduced you to friends of mine, but I had no idea what you were doing. Next thing you know, police and FBI arrest me. Don't let me talk to a lawyer, right? Again, control my body. Say I can't go anywhere unless I, well, sure, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear to get me out of this scenario that I'm in. And well, now I'm criminalized and now I'm the post job for C. This is the problem with black athletes and why we must control them at every turn. Right. And, um, you know, it was also this fight, like heading into um, Spencer Haywood's mm -hmm. case, where not only do they want to control your body when you're in the NBA, but they want to control your body when you're in the NCAA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So there are these interlocking systems. I call them interlocking monopolies because mm -hmm. let's face it, the NCAA operates like a monopoly. Sure does. It just doesn't pay its workers. <laughs> 501c3. I'm nonprofit. What do you yes. mean? Well, it's a successful kind of monopoly. <laughs> um, you know, there are student athletes, and I, I always, in any work that I do, will always put that term in quotes always. because that, that's a, you know, a, a, a PR fiction. Mm. Um, and you know, the NBA understands that they're essentially getting a free um PR machine and also a free source of talent in terms of a free farm system through the NCAA and so the four-year rule that um you know that uh oh geez why am I suddenly forgetting that Spencer Haywood came up mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. I was just thinking of Connie class? Hawkins I don't know I was like <laughs> no not Connie Hawkins that um uh, Spencer Haywood came up against was all about controlling the flow of now increasingly black bodies into the NBA. Um, you know, we're not going to pay to train you. That's on you. And if you injure yourself before you actually get to the league, you take on all of that risk. And then once they, you know, get into the draft or are allowed permitted to get into the draft after that four year delay, which essentially forced folks into the NCAA system, then, you know, the draft 
And the, we often think of the draft as like this thing that's really exciting. We watch it and there's it you know, these young kids <laughs> who are, you know, getting signed to these teams. But we forget that the draft was actually designed to make sure that they kept all of the rookie wages at a certain level. Because if you're drafted by a team, you can't turn around and suddenly negotiate with another team. That's part of the draft process. So, and and during the Oscar Robertson case, Oscar Robertson et al. v. the NBA, mm-hmm. which eventually helped to um, get rid of the reserve clause, they in their their case actually said, "Look, the draft system." also operates in this way to try and suppress our wages and control our movement. And for folks like Oscar Robertson and, um, you know, by the time of Oscar Robertson, um, the NBPA, which was the Players Association, their union was black dominated. The leadership, you know, was black dominated, even though there were white players in, in the union, they couldn't separate out this question of you're going to have control over my mobility from what they knew of slavery, right? And Jim Crow, because those are systems that are designed to have control over, you know, labor and one's body and one's movement. And so they couldn't help but see this as not just a a labor um, rights issue, but also a black rights issue. Mm-hmm. I, um, in the, I guess, so Gerard was referencing chapter one, mm-hmm. but the introduction is about this article. You referenced this, um, NBA and cocaine, nothing to <laughs> snort at. Right. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Everybody who I ever talked to about doing this book, they are always like, Oh yeah. Weren't they all on cocaine? That's right. like 75%. So it's, a seriously enduring image mm-hmm. of this time period. So I remember when, okay, so uh, everything that you said since Strahd's like first question is like, I feel like it's like my career is just I'm like, oh my God. I basically <laughs> feel like I like was like following Davis Stern around for decades, right? And he was up to stuff, but it was like moved in complicated ways that were, I mean, sometimes he was very hard. Sometimes he was very soft and like, and it's kind of hard to put it all together, but this, the intro of your book, like, I was like, oh, so what's happening here, which makes a lot more sense to me is, well, Stern said, actually, there was like an unguarded moment when he was on his retirement tour and he was like, joined the Utah Jazz local broadcast and talked about what he was most proud of his career. And he said that basically like when he took over, everyone told him that it was going to fail because the league was just too black. But he right. showed them basically. He like, you know, he made America love this very black thing and he was very proud of this, right? And like, so mm-hmm. what does that work look like, right? And like, intro to your book, it's like, oh, like, like he kind of affirmed this emotion that like, oh my gosh, if black people take control, like that would be wild and scary. And we got to like, we got to like tamp that down, right? And so in a lot of like signaling ways mm-hmm. and, you know, the malice in the palace led to a dress code, this kind of stuff, right? right? Like, like he kind of like, he sort of made it look safe enough, right? All these sort of big declarations of like, I know he was like beyond proud of like Michael Ray Richardson had a drug problem and David Stern banned him for life. And as David told it, Michael <laughs> Ray thanked him for saving his life. And it's like, right. David Stern and will it's be in control. This narrative right? like, of, you know, um, redemption and yeah. rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. But 
if you actually look at the drug policy and, you know, especially in that last chapter, chapter seven, where I follow the case of Bernard King mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, uh, look at some of the other cases um, and then how in the epilogue I'm looking at the drug policy that sort of comes out of that moment, you can see that really what they were concerned about was a perception of drug use in the NBA. And, and, and I want to clarify, I'm not saying that nobody was doing cocaine in the NBA. There may have been some, but cocaine. who wasn't doing cocaine, you know, for folks who actually had the money. So this is like before the days of crack and the, you know, the glut of cocaine that comes on the market and drops the price. So it becomes this kind of dare I say, more democratic drug because mm -hmm. everybody can use it. Mm -hmm. This is the day when, you know, cocaine, powder cocaine was very expensive. It was the drug of the, you know, the white jet setter, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the folks who were celebrities, uh, who were, you know, Wall Street professionals, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, um, and so I think what was um, creating this moral panic in a sense was the fact that these were young black men who, you know, suddenly found themselves, you know, uh, with these huge contracts who can use a drug that they're not actually supposed to have access to, you know, in, in terms of their class, mm -hmm. their imagined, mm -hmm. you know, their rightful class status. And so that's sort of where that moral panic came out of. Um, so the league was very much, you know, cognizant of the fact that, you know, these are black players that are getting caught or that are having these scandals. And mind you, like, you know, the most um, notable scandals, there actually weren't that many of them. <laughs> Surprisingly, if you think about what was happening in white Hollywood at the time, equal number of scandals. Um, yeah. But you know, the NBA, because of its blackness, became the sort of target of moral panic. And so the, the league initially was just like, well, we should show that, you know, we are telling the players that they are not permitted to use these drugs and we should make sure that we educate them. Um, we should make sure that we have players going out and doing anti-drug spots to show mm -hmm. that they are, you know, part of this just say no culture <laughs> but there was very little in at least in the initial policy that was about sort of helping folks and a lot of the folks that i talk about in that chapter they were you know it wasn't like they were just out partying having a good time a lot of them had trauma they you know had mental illness they had you know clinical depression so it wasn't you know they've they've sort of been decontextualized in in some ways um and so i wanted to bring some of that context back that humanity back that of course this narrative of stern as the white savior to the nba completely erases this idea um you know, that these, these were just, you know, they, they were young guys. Um, and the league didn't seem all that interested in really um, doing that much rehabilitation. The players had to sort of push them um, um, to be more cognizant of that. Um, 
but they also recognized that they were backed up against, uh, you know, they were backed into a corner in terms of the the larger discourse about them all being drug addicts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why they were willing to sign on to this drug policy in the first place, which incidentally had a three strikes rule, which I thought was so interesting, given the fact that this becomes, you know, one of the major policy initiatives in the subsequent decade mm -hmm. in dealing with sort of low level um, uh, drug crimes and, and other uh, crimes that predominantly African-American uh, men and women are being targeted for. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just the, the inter, the way that everything gets intertwined is amazing. And I think in this book, right, like we're talking about, you know, all the problems in society that were mirrored, right? Richard Nixon's law and order and all of that. We're using those same policies in the NBA to police black behavior. This goes into your personal story too, right? You mentioned when you started working with, uh, the Toronto dance pack, there was a lot of Biggie Smalls and a lot of like hip hop music, right? But once the Toronto uh, Maple Leafs took over, it was like, well, we have to do Will Smith and much more sanitized black that like is acceptable. And it had me thinking about the way in which music that impacted the society in the same way, right? Motown was the way in which black people on mass were palpable to a white audience right mm -hmm. because it's like all mm -hmm. right they're smiling and they're happy <laughs> and look at Smokey robinson and they're all oh, so great right but really that wasn't the true story of what was going on in black life at the time right no they didn't people didn't want to hear about jim crow no 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 look they're all happy singing having fun meanwhile it's like can we actually the real story is like marvin Gaye's what's going on right the real the real pains are like these these different stories right like again like as you were doing this are you like, what were those aha moments where you're like, yes, oh my God, this happened here. And you're like, as it's happening, you see all the current parallels. Like in terms of my own experience yeah, on yeah, the court? It's yeah. like the sociologist on the dance team, right? Yeah, literally. You know what? Here's the funny thing. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to a good friend of mine, uh, Tamara Mose, who's also uh, an academic and a sociologist who was the leader of the Toronto nice. Raptors dance pack at All the time. smart people. All I smart people. I asked you, like, as a joke, were there any other sociologists on? But, like, there literally were. Like, <laughs> no, I'm the historian, and she's the sociologist. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, and so many of us have gone on That's to awesome. do really interesting things. So don't, you know, don't count out the dancers. <laughs> oh, you guys know everything, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we... Uh, I, I recall in the first um, season that particularly in the first season, we were dancing to all of the latest stuff. We were, you know, we even danced to like, woo-ha. Wow. <laughs> Whoa, like, the Rhymes. Like, yeah, that's like, you know. Rhymes, like, right? And then you really saw the shift, particularly when we moved into the new arena, which at the time was called the Air Canada Center. Mm -hmm. Um and it became very corporatized. I was actually, for a summer job, was working um, in the office where they were moving all of the Toronto Maple Leafs season seat holders into the new Air Canada Center. So, you know, I saw so many grown men cry. <laughs> oh, like the fact that their seats weren't as good in like because the, there's this like really like layered oh. way that they made a decision about where folks would be sitting in the new arena. Um, 
so you know, well, like, why so I, delicate? Why is everybody so <laughs> delicate about this? Because a lot of these were, you know, this is one thing that I learned about, you know, seasoned seat holders and just how this is so laden with race and power, right? First of all, only certain people can afford them. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I did find out was that often these seat licenses are passed down mm-hmm. from, yes. you know, they're actually bequeathed <laughs> in people's wills and they're held in the family. So they have this kind of legacy value. So it's like so you guys in the things- corporate office were taking dad away. Right. Like, it's like the feeling, right? right? Like, you know, like, and they had had these season seats since blah, 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 yeah. you know, and, since the and now, you know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was, it was very interesting, but what it taught me was how much, you know, the season seat holders are seen as the ones who you cater to. So, for example, then they started selling seat licenses on the floor um, for the Raptors games. And so you saw a similar kind of dynamic where it was primarily folks with a lot of wealth because you buy the seat license. That's a certain fee. And then you got to buy the tickets on top Mm -hmm. of that. So it's mostly wealthy individuals and corporations that buy up those seats. So you can almost see if you, anytime you go to a game, you just kind of look up into the stands and you can see sort of the color (laughs) changing (laughs) as you go down and like class levels changing as you go down. Um, And so I saw that very powerfully when I was dancing because before in the first few seasons, we were, you know, in the Sky Dome, which is cavernous. That's mm-hmm. where the Blue Jays mm-hmm. uh, played. And, you know, there wasn't as much emphasis on catering to the floor seats because the Raptors, as I like to think of them at that time, were kind of like a startup corp. You know, they were a startup business. They were kind of agile and, you know, uh, went against the grain. But then when it was bought by, the Maple Leaf Sport and Entertainment and moved into this new arena, all of the old rules started to apply. And so, you know, I you you could even, I don't have any pictures on me, but if you look at the picture from the original team and then you look a few years down the line, you can literally see the difference in in the costumes, in the type of women who were, you know, being hired. Um, certainly in the kind of music that was being played. So it went from being much more, I think, reflective of youth culture, youth kids of color, um, you know, black culture uh, of the late 90s to being really, let's play the song that might be played at a, you know, (laughs) at a, I don't know. That would be acceptable mm-hmm. to, you know, baby boomers right. or at, baby boomer, at, a, at their kid's wedding, right? Like that's yeah. like very like okay, we'll tell right. This this song's perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What drove so, that? Like, who was that coming from? Feedback from fans or from someone in corporate or like what? How did it actually I, happen? I know that was way above my pay grade yeah. when I was in my twenties, <laughs> but I could just sort of see it happening yeah. in real time. And actually, this is a funny story. At one point, they asked us to 
you know, go in our like little crop tops and whatever. And they put us into the stands and we were supposed to do like, I don't know, we, we used to call it the 20 minute workout, but basically it was like during all of the timeouts Mm -hmm. in the fourth quarter, you would go out and you would do like a Mm -hmm. short routine. They wanted to put us in the, literally in the stands and we did it and it, it was awful. It was like people were yelling stuff at you, like the most misogynistic, like, oh, you know, commenting on your appearance. We went back into the change room and we said, never again. You can fire us all right now. Oh, we wow. are not mm-hmm. going to do that again. And, you know, they also tried to give us or had thought about giving us pom poms at one point. And we oh were like, no, God. that's not what we are. And so we were like, no. So I don't know who ultimately had these ideas, but you could certainly see them working out. And I don't know if it was like, you know, super intentional or just more like, well, this is what we think the fans would like. So mm-hmm. therefore, mm-hmm. let's curate the show in this way but it Mm -hmm. definitely it definitely shifted this idea of curating things to the fans right this goes back to this idea of governance right because henry and i were talking about this a few weeks ago on the phone right there's this weird thing with and you mentioned it with lebron right how the cleveland fans got so upset right burning his jersey like I believe one of them like shot it like in their backyard with like their gun or whatever. And it's, like, <laughs> right. All What's these the like, right. It's just <laughs> like, like, what? Like, can you like, imagine if you left your job and people were like shooting, <laughs> shooting at like your suit? It's like, I don't like what? This is the stupidest like, thing I've ever heard. All in my we life. know is you're angry. And we knew that before. It's just so this idea of, and it plays into, you know, fantasy sports, right? This, this mm-hmm. again, idea of like, I own these guys, right? Like you're on my team and you do in in essence what I say, right? Like you're going to, you know, I need these minutes and players will talk about all the time. How they'll get like accosted by fans in the street, bro. Couldn't you score like an extra 10 points? I needed to win my fantasy this week or what? And it's like, this is Mm -hmm. work. Like I don't like, you know what I mean? I don't really care about your fantasy and what you're doing, but we have perpetuated this, this in these, in these industries. And I'm, I'm wondering now, like, you know, where do we go from here? Like, what do guys like Spencer Hayward think about, like, what's happening now versus when they play, right? Yeah, they're like, it's better. You guys make a ton more money. But in so many ways, the fights for your own governance is still the same. This episode of True Hoop is brought to you by BetterHelp. Hey, guys, Gerard from True Hoop here. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do? It's a hell of a question. Would you maybe go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? Now, depending on the day, any one of those would be a great idea. Most of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Now, I've been open in the past with you guys about this. I see a personal therapist as well as a couple therapists for my partner and I. And both are extremely helpful in developing positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. Therapy empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com truehoop today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P.com slash TrueHoop. Yeah. I mean, I suspect that a lot of the folks of the older generation, like Haywood and others, I mean, the guys now are making money like that they couldn't even imagine. imagine. And one of the beefs that they have, particularly the guys who were not the Spencer Haywoods or the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, who were sort of, you know, the journeymen who were, you know, the guy riding the bench or the folks particularly, and this is one of the most tragic stories, the guys who were playing in the ABA who got left behind Mm -hmm. when the merger happened, Mm -hmm. they've been left without health care, you know, and, and, you know, even the guys who made it into the NBA, they couldn't count their years of ABA Mm -hmm. service towards Mm -hmm. their pensions in the NBA. Um, And so I think that there is a level of, um, I don't want to say bitterness, but a desire to be seen mm-hmm. for what they did in mm-hmm. order to set such a wonderful stage mm-hmm. and uh, a whole slate of labor rights for the players now. And this desire to, you know, really have that be recognized. And I yeah. think, you know, part of what I was trying to do in the book was to tell this story about race and labor. And then also to say, hey, like these, these things weren't just granted by the NBA, they had to be fought over. And many of the guys who put their necks out on the line, or who were lost in the shuffle, they really lost a lot Mm -hmm. in this fight, even if you know, black players and players as a whole ended up gaining so much more out yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so we know. Have this... I mean, sorry. Yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just, um, there's a structure where like the teams have so much control, right? And as we've been discussing, and um, one downside of that is meddling with people's lives, right? You got to take your kids out of school and find a new home when you get traded and just all oh, this, just this kind of like, strange things that most workers just wouldn't put up with, right? You just don't want to be traded, right? No one wants to be traded. Give me a break. It's like the worst thing. Um, But then in addition, it creates this other thing, which is the people who run the teams don't really feel the competitive pressure, right? Like they will be getting players from the draft or from the salary cap structure, right? They will be provided more talent, even if they're terrible at their jobs, right? Which is very harmful to the league in subtle ways, right? But there's this, I didn't know about this, um, Chet Walker sued the Bulls and then and he said I think the biggest fault now in professional basketball is incompetency I can't talk incompetency on the management level yes and like yes I yeah <laughs> you agree and, and that was actually and you know he wasn't the first one to say that you know um black players all along throughout the late 60s and into the 70s were like why are you blaming us like yeah have you met You're this guy offering over to here? pay me this much money. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm mm-hmm. gonna sign the, you know, yeah. sign on the contract because I have leverage, mm-hmm. especially in the talent war between the ABA and the NBA. And so one of the things that happens in that Senate um, investigation about whether or not they should grant an uh, Sherman Antitrust Act, um, you know, allowance for uh, a waiver for um, the NBA is he says, look, I'm worth whatever you're willing to pay Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. 
Like, you know, I, so in fact, one of the, um, the senators, Senator Irvin, who was siding with the players, although it was kind of a, of, you know, strange ally (laughs) that he was not, you know, uh, not for civil rights legislation, but he was more of a libertarian and didn't want their right to sort of freedom of contract to be disrupted. Um, He said at one point, I feel like what you're asking for is corporate welfare because you created this situation where you've overpaid past what is a reasonable business plan for a lot of these teams that weren't necessarily in big markets that didn't have, um, you know, the arenas to support the kind of revenue that they needed to compete with the Knicks or the Lakers, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, And then they were coming and crying to the Senate and saying, or, you know, can you bail us out Mm -hmm. essentially? You know, can you reinstitute all of, you know, keep these clauses in place and let us merge so that we can go back to doing business as usual? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's been this this long critique by Chet Walker and others who sort of knew what was going on behind the scenes and knew that a lot of bad decisions were being made. Sometimes they were speculative decisions that were based on the hope for big payouts later. And sometimes they were just, you know, decisions that were made because, you know, the management in the case of Chet Walker didn't really think that highly of the opinions of its own black players Mm -hmm. who probably knew the game, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Way better than anybody in the front office. Um, And yeah, it's just consistently the underestimating of folks who I think play for a living and that's sort of also maybe you couldn't in, hear the air quotes right? there but there were some good air quotes well i know this you know i i used to dance for a living and not you know the respectable kind <laughs> just putting that in there for au um so uh you know and i remember people would come up to me um and they would say wow what a fun job you have you know right. and and sometimes you know uh people who were hiring you would try to give you gifts in kind rather than paying you actual money like, like and, what it was always like perfume like i did this <laughs> okay. one gig you know like to, to advertise perfume and they were like here here's some perfume i'm like that's not going to pay my rent. Yeah, my landlord doesn't accept <laughs> perfume bottles. That does mm-mm. not accept perfume. But it's like, <laughs> you know, even at that level, you're getting this narrative from folks who are watching because you are putting on a show, because you are doing something that they would consider playful or fun or leisure, that you must not be doing work. Right. And then you yeah. layer on top of that all of these anti-black ideas about particularly young black men. And it creates a situation where team owners and league officials can actually turn to the fans and find their support in suppressing player rights. And I'd be curious to see if this happens again, you know, in the latest round of negotiation. Yeah. Well, it, it's certainly going to come up. And it, what you're talking about is what what is valued, right? And 
the black body has value, but the black mind does not. Right. That's mm-hmm. in, in that scenario. That that's the situation. And in your case, right, dancing. Yeah. Well, we don't we don't realize the work that goes into it. It's just this thing that we see that oh, it, it gives us it fires off our synapses. Great, but that's not real work, right? But you don't know it's real work because you don't do it, right? You don't know how difficult right. it is to choreograph from plan. But you mentioned the current uh, negotiations. I think we're going to see it, Henry. You know, we talk about this all the time. The load management issue is a huge thing, and that's going to be a huge sticking point. And you mentioned Teresa how the owners have their their commonalities with the fans and the media who are supporting this. It is a conversation going on right now. And mm-hmm. every time I hear it, it drives me crazy. And it is, well, what about the family that spends, you know, 800 bucks on tickets for six plus concessions, plus this and that, and they want to see LeBron and he doesn't play. And my thing is, first of all, if you've got 800 to $1,200 as disposable income and take your family of six and I'm not that worried about you, Dana. Dana John's because... already, John's already like people who spend eight hundred dollars are bullshit. Right? <laughs> like, I, already... <laughs> because if that's what you have as disposable income to do things with, I imagine you're not worried about paying your light bill every month, right? So I, I don't feel bad for you in that sense. And the analogy I use is, if I want to see Denzel and the man with the hat on Broadway and he's sick that day, I don't get a refund. I gotta watch the mm-hmm. understudy. That's that's mm-hmm. how the game works. Like I'm entitled right. to seeing a play. That is what I paid for. Right now, I had the well, hope that I would yeah. see Denzel, but if he's not there, it's not. I, I can't get my money back. That's not how it works. <laughs> but it's so interesting that we immediately go to the players. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Right? Like, what, uh, uh, who sets the prices for the the tickets? Right. You give Genie Bus eight hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> he promises LeBron's gonna play. And then the you promise know, like isn't LeBron kept. Isn't have with his rightful like, cut of that, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know. But really, where I mean, where does the money go? And that's this whole idea that Jesse Jackson talked about in the seventies about vertical vertical segregation in the sports industry, right? So the what we see on the floor is predominantly black. Although, you know, it ebbs and flows Mm -hmm. like anything else. But we see a black game. But behind the scenes, I mean, and I think think the NBA has done a better job of actually promoting folks and um, have, you know, mind you, though, when you're comparing a league to the NFL, it's like the bar is <laughs> so low. Yeah. Bar is pretty yeah, right. low, right? NFL so bad. And and hockey, you know, uh, that's not even count. Hockey that's doesn't like, really yeah. have the same kind yeah. of dynamics. <laughs> so, you know, I but I think, you know, the NBA has been better in that sense, but the dynamic ultimately is still the same. You yeah. know, um it's predominantly white owners and the owners you know, with the exception of like LeBron and some of the marquee players, they're the ones who are the wealthy ones. The players are rich. They're wealthy. We never yeah. sort of we never right. We never immediately go to to the owners. Like, what it, are the owners doing? Like, we're why, somehow, we're why do they need accustomed. the profit margin to be so huge? Yeah. We well, edit them out of the analysis, right? We just yeah. do. Like, when fans look at the sports, they're like, LeBron should do more for me. Mm-hmm. It's like the fan and LeBron are the only two parties. And it's like, where is where's where's the bus? Bus family? Yeah, where's him, right. Like, or Dr. Bus, who yeah. is, had a binder full of teenagers he slept with. Like, <laughs> what a creep. Like, right. like, why is that just well, something we all know, are like, used to? As long like, as, you know, um, 
a, a, a team owner isn't obviously spouting racial slurs. Right. He could be a slumlord. You right, know, like, like right. look the other way, right. you know? He's, qu- he's quirky. <laughs> yeah. Donald Sterling was quirky for decades. The first day of my career, I was like, oh, he's quirky. It's like, <laughs> no, know. he's awful. He's a fucking yeah. human being. He's, he's absolutely awful. It, it is also, <laughs> I, I, I think part of it is the psychology, right? I think. Yeah. We understand as human beings, millions make sense to us, right? Like you understand, like, because a million dollars is like, oh, that's a lot. Like you're rich, right? And that's what most players are. They're millionaires, right? Mm-hmm. You can't fathom Steve Bomber money. Like that that doesn't <laughs> like your brain cannot wrap around what that means. Like, oh yeah, Steve Bomber's like the second richest person in the like they don't but no, it's not it's not even rich. It's a, it's a thing that I can't even I don't have the vocabulary to explain in words right. how much money he has, right? But, but remember, problem, they're, right? they're, like, <laughs> they're the job creators, well. <laughs> right? So you see how this logic of yeah. sport yeah. <laughs> is very much the logic outside yes. of sport. Yes. You know, we're, we're sort of in a different moment now than we were in the 70s, where in neoliberalism, the privatization, um, you know, has has really... Uh, created this massive, massive wealth disparity that we hadn't seen since the Gilded Age. And yet the framing of it is, well, but we're giving you jobs. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and it's very similar. The 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 NBA and the team owners mm-hmm. back in the 70s would say, but we're giving you jobs. We're helping mm-hmm. you become, yeah. you know, wealthy. And sure you, are. <laughs> you will never get this chance anywhere else. But that also yeah. means that the folks who don't get those contracts, and we often don't talk about them, they're completely right. So we can look at, you know, my book really tracks mostly the the folks who got the contracts and, you know, won a, a, a degree of of fame and fortune. But behind them was a whole mountain of folks who were completely discarded. And left with nothing. So. And I think there's in the way that we ignore the sort of oddities and evils of the billionaires, right? Is this strange thing that happens outside of sports too, where like, okay, let's just, let's use Steve Ballmer, right? Steve Ballmer is coming to visit a university or a nonprofit or whatever. Like we all just need him to love us, mm-hmm. right? Like we we wish we could bask in the glow of Steve Ballmer because he like people like Steve Ballmer have to solve the problems of you know fundraising or your mm-hmm. startup fund whatever your thing is, right? Like everyone's used to just like he's got some personal peccadillos. Like shut up, like <laughs> right. just throw a gala for him. That's what we do, right? We just yes. throw a gala for him. Yeah. And so like, right, the right. idea that like you know some clipper would complain about him is like we all are coping with the Steve Ballmer figure that we're trying to butter up or something. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and, and it's very unhealthy, of course. Right. Like, but, <laughs> yes, clearly. <laughs> but it seems weird. I think when, you know, like think about before Sterling's like, you know, racism and misogyny in recorded audio was right. broadcast when it was just like players saying, it's a little weird that he watches a shower. Right. And I was like, <laughs> right. Ah, right. Shut up. Yeah. You know, like, right. just yeah. shut yeah. up. Yeah. He's yeah. your rich guy. Yeah. You know, right. like, it's so, 
my god. It's a bad situation. <laughs> but that's normal, right? Like, it, it, <laughs> God, is this, it's so wide ranging, right? Like, again, it is the Teresa's point, like you're the job creators, right? But it's, you know, it, we're seeing this sort of now, like in, in the workforce, right? Like work and efficiency and production has mm. gone up exponentially. But wages, right? If you look at d- dollar for dollar, like what it could buy in the 1950s and 60s versus now, Wages have gone down, right? Like the average worker makes less money now than they did 60 years ago, right? But how does that make sense if prop every industry and every company, record profits, you see it all the time. And yet, mm-hmm. <laughs> every day it's like, oh, we got to lay off 2,000 people because profits ain't high enough. And it, it's just, and again, this is what's going to happen come the, the labor. Every owner is going to cry, we're losing money. And I'm like, oh, that's not, I don't know. Like, I don't believe you. Like, right? Like, I don't believe you. Like, open your books up for real. Like, don't give me your funny accounting, man. Give me the real thing. Oh, we see there's a slush fund where you take all the money away and put it in your own pocket. Got it. That's why you're losing money, right? But there's, there's no way. It's just not possible. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, you know, the players, when they, um, when they were in front of the Senate and, um, you know, they had the, uh, the the Senate had those economists come in. A, they didn't have enough um, information to actually determine how profitable these teams were. And B, there was so much overlap between personal wealth and corporate wealth that a lot of these guys were using losses on their teams against their other tax bills in order to, you know, claim a loss and have to pay less to the government. So there were all of these other benefits and many of them actually even owned the arenas. Like we forget about just how many or how, like how many pots (laughs) their hands are in in terms, you know, concessions, the arenas, um, you know, the merchandising, all of these things. Parking, and that has only exploded. Mm-hmm. Oh, the mm-hmm. parking. And now there's like yeah. <laughs> office parks around the arena. Mm-hmm. And like right. A, you know, on and on and on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all of that is made invisible in these discussions that often happen on kind of popular sports media, because it's much easier, I think, to demonize the players. Yeah. Easy. And we, we work in story narrative, right, Henry? And, and stories need heroes and villains. Yeah. Much easier for us to stomach them that way. I did notice though, like, so like the 2010 11 lockout was in public. And then Stern left and, and like, and Silver took over. And then the next one was silent, mm-hmm. Very quiet. which was an interesting calculation. I was like, oh, like, mm-hmm. like the, the billionaires don't think they can win through the media <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. this time, right? And now it's happening again. The talks are well underway now, mm-hmm. right? But just no yeah. one knows where they are. And they're not happening. We're not in the hallway anymore. And like, mm-hmm. And I think it's like, oh, the, the, the strategy has shifted. <laughs> well, I think also the media landscape has shifted. The players have their own ways to get their voices heard. They don't have to go through conventional media anymore um, to make their points. So if LeBron wants to say something, he can just tweet it or put it on you know, Instagram or whatever on social media. So that has sort of changed the game. I think also, too... Let's face it, the NBPA is one of the most powerful sports unions in North American sport. 
and they stand together. They're pretty, pretty united front. They're very well organized. They're very well funded. Mm -hmm. And I think that the league now understands that, you know, they're trying to sell themselves as the woke league. We can't come out and just hammer, hammer, hammer the players in the same way that we did, you know, in the seventies or even in the early two thousands. Um, because that's just not going to fly with our public image. So when all of that Black Lives Matter stuff started happening, particularly in the bubble, I think that they the calculation was, well, you know, we got to you know, support their right to free speech, which I thought was a really interesting way of framing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't agree, <laughs> but... Yeah, like, but no, or we'll, 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 you know, we'll support their right to free speech. Um, but let's not actually say I support their position against structural racism and police brutality. And they put Black so, Lives Matter on the court for one right. <laughs> little mini part of the season, right back up. Like, what was the meeting where you took it off? I'd like to know about that meeting like but they i think in some ways it's like they've realized that they actually have to make certain concessions um and they can't just steamroll people um because the mbpa has a lot of power and the nba is now deliberately marketing itself as more progressive than you know for example the nfl <laughs> they're they're sort of marketing themselves as the antidote to the you know yeah. all of the kind of racial politics of the NFL well then you can't really go out and publicly attack people in the ways that might have been permissible i think you know 20 years ago yeah. it they've had to figure out more you know underhanded ways to to um you know discipline the players and oh, they they are thinking about it right now, right? They're they're trying to figure out their way because they know we, yeah. you know, they they want to come back and get their pound of flesh because that's that's how these these fights go. The book, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. It is out next month, Teresa. Uh, it's supposed to be March seventh. Okay, March seventh. So. So make sure you guys get that wherever books are sold. I would tell you to buy it on that website, but don't buy it from an independent bookstore, and you know which website I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but, you know what? I told like apparently, like it's good for Teresa if people do buy it. There's, you, there's oh, a whole like thing about what, better, what affects oh, like I mean, do it whatever Teresa tells you to do. But rewind, um, buy it on that website. Man. If it helps <laughs> Teresa, buy it on that website. You Fine. know what? I would just be happy if you bought it. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's some crazy stuff about pre-sales. Whatever. I don't know. I'm no expert, yeah. but like, yeah. Or, order it in pre-sales, guys. It, guys, it is fantastic. Players that you've heard of that may have a story that you think was what it was, but it's not. Teresa uncovers it with her incredible research and super dynamic writing style. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank no you. All right, guys. We will see you later this week. Take care.